to the Visionary Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Lindsay Lawson, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, um, Keith E. Benson. So, Keith, thank you for coming on, and um, how are you doing today, before I introduce you? (laughs) Well, first, thank you for having me, Lindsay. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. What's up, visionaries? So before we dive into this week's episode, I thought I would give a little introduction for our incredible guest this week, Mr. Keith E. Benson. So Keith is from Camden, New Jersey. He is a very accomplished musician, having two Grammy Awards and 24 certified gold records to his name. And besides that, he's also a very large figure in the world of academia and a lifelong learner. He's currently a fellow at the Advanced Leadership Initiative Fellowship here at Harvard, and he is founder of the U.S. Department of Peace, a hub for social justice and change. Without further ado, Mr. Keith E. Benson. Well, I was raised in Camden. Um, Camden has a tradition of great basketball, a lot of great basketball players came out of Camden, the Wagners and the Thompsons and Carstarf uh, and, and, you know, quite a few that have made national names for themselves. Um, but after the 70s, um, it became a, an industrial, you know, a wasteland, really, and um, crime increased, corruption really went through the roof. So right now, Camden is still a great city with a lot of great people, but we have great corruption that we're trying to fight, and we're going to win that one way or the other. We're mm-hmm. going to win, but it's it's it is literally ridiculous what's going on in Camden, with with corruption. Um, the governor's trying to fight it, but um, it's so entrenched that it's even difficult for him. But we're going to do what we have to do. Um, people at Harvard have actually offered to help. And we're going to handle that. I think it's the most corrupt city in the nation. But I don't want to depress your or your audience. <laughs> it's still a great city with a lot of great people, a lot of great potential. Matter of fact, Camden has two fellows at Harvard Business School, ALI. Um, that's me my, uh, and my other friend named Tim Merle. And we might be the only small city with um, two fellows. So that shows you how dynamic the city is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what brought you to Harvard? Um, I know. How did you get connected with Harvard? Um, as it stands, my aunt, who just passed a little short while ago, named Virginia Henderson, she passed at 100 years old. She went to, had a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, I'm telling you now, in the 50s, not a lot of people who look like me went to the University of Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. So I still don't know how she did it, but she did it. So at any rate, I'm at her house and I'm trying to help her. And I'm bored, quite frankly. Her magazine comes in and says, Harvard is looking for leaders. And I'm looking at the work I do in Camden, and um, I'm saying, okay, well, I'm going to apply. And um, they first rejected me because they said, your, your music business career is fine, but you have no leadership. Uh-huh. But it just so happened that one of the youth that I worked with in Camden named Jared Tingle was going to Harvard Business School. So I said, I'll tell you what, why don't you walk over to Charles River and find Jared Tingle at Harvard Business School and ask him if I got any leadership ability. I said, if you think he's the only one, 
let me know the day you want to bring a whole busload <laughs> of kids, you know, who are single parent, you know, stressed out in Camden, but they're doing remarkable work now. I said, I lead people who don't want to be led, so I'm a leader. Yeah. And two weeks later, a FedEx package says, welcome, congratulations, you're well, a member of the 2020 ALI oh class. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I love that. Like, you didn't get it at first, but you stuck to it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah sometimes... Uh, your personality or who you are doesn't always show up on that resume. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I love that. So, what are you working um, towards in this fellowship and what kind of leadership strategies are you? So, to my understanding, this is the most prestigious fellowship in the world when it comes to adding value to the world. To be a part of this fellowship, you have to work on, develop, um, or move along a social impact project. And my social impact project is called the U.S. Department of Peace. And PEACE is an acronym for Political, Economic, Academic, Cultural, Environmental Equity. Um, And my philosophy is, I've seen all of my life coming up in Camden people working on the problem. And they're good people, and they're well-meaning people, and they ought to be celebrated. But I'm to the point where I want to see these problems solved. And the (laughs) only way they solve they get solved is if the people know they have the light and they can see what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So Peace is a platform, it's an online platform like uh, Facebook, but it's an online platform for, for um, activists, advocacy, and social justice. It's a platform for systemic change. So all the social justice people, the Sierra Club, the ACP, ACLU, even your group would be a member of peace. So then we need to push some legislation from some recalcitrant legislators, you know. In other words, it wouldn't be uh, two million people calling Joe Manchin's office, it'd be 20 million people, you know, mm-hmm. and let them know that we do have the power and the influence to actually change his tra- trajectory. So it's people getting knowledge and coming together. And it's moving along nicely. Yes. Yeah, moving along very nicely. That's great. What kind of leadership strategies are you using or implementing in the U.S. Department of Peace? Well, basically, all we're doing is we're, uh, like Facebook just allows people to come together and communicate. Mm -hmm. We're allowing people to come together and share best practices, share information, share rallies and and, and events, you know. Um, So we're actually following the lead of the people that are already doing it. It's just instead of Sierra Club, being um, passed off as tree huggers and marginalized. <laughs> now when they say we need an um, environmental justice rally in DC, instead of just going out to their three, four, five million um, um, members, now they're going out to 20, 30 million and they'll have a much lar- larger impact. So we're really just supporting the ones that are there and we're following their lead. Gotcha, yeah. No need to reinvent the wheel. We got great leaders out there already. That's perfect. Yeah. I think once you figure that out, you're on your way, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, in general, what does service mean to you? I know you've led your whole life, and to me, leadership is kind of ser- service in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, just extending yourself um, to the youth or yeah. to... So now you, you, you're going to make me get deep on you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, to me, and it's just my perspective, life is crazy. I mean, just the whole idea of life. We pop out into this existence out of nowhere. Who, how the heck did I get here? Where the heck am I going? I don't know how I got here. They tell me I had a mother and father. I believe that, but it's still pretty remarkable. You pop up, you don't know where you pop up, and you leave this world, you don't know when, you don't know where you're going. 
That is insane. That's enough to drive everybody crazy. So in trying to make sense out of that, I said, well, what are we ultimately here for? The only thing I can come up with that makes sense to help each other. So that makes a lot of sense. I've been doing that, and my life has been so full and so happy since then. I want to tell everybody who's not happy, like, yo, if you really start helping other people, it's amazing. You'll be happy. You try to, It's like happiness is an elusive uh, thing, and it's paradoxical that everybody I know that's trying to be happy is not. Mm. But everybody I know that's trying to make other people happy is. Um, and and I, um, so I, I discovered that years ago, and I keep doing it because it keeps working. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a specific point in time when you discovered that? Of course. Of course. You want to explain that? Yeah, there's a friend of mine uh, who got me in the music business named Vicar Starfin. I was a drummer at Camden High, and he was a keyboard player. And, of course, the crowd put us together. I didn't know him. He didn't know me. But, like, you got to work with him. So we got together, and I came up in a very, very, very stable household. Um, I, thought I, was, I thought I was doing quite well. When I saw a movie called The Prince and the Pauper, I identified with The Prince. Even though I'm in Camden. Yeah. But he was had different circumstances. He was homeless. He was going through a rough time. And I took, I had my mother move him, and he, so he became like my brother. So I'm thinking I'm helping him. And bless, bless, five years later, he's writing one of the biggest songs in, in R&B music called Wake Up Everybody. And all, a lot of R&B classics he was writing. He ended up calling me out of Howard into the music business. He ended up helping me, and I'm thinking I'm helping him. And every good thing's ever happened to me in my life. And even being here at Harvard, I'm, I'm actually, I was helping my aunt. I had no idea I was going to come to a Harvard. But every good thing, and I've had a life full of, I, have, I had a life pregnant with good things. Um, but every last one of them, if I had, if I could name 10 major ones, every single one came as a result of me trying to help somebody, having no idea it was going to come back to me. Mm-hmm. And now a lot of these young guys that I help out, they tell me the same thing. Like one guy, uh, I won't say his name, but um, he's doing quite well. He's on Wall Street now, and we ended up hooking up because he went to jail. But he actually went to jail to cover up for one of his boys. It wasn't his crime. Mm. He was helping his boy, and now he's on Wall Street making six figures plus and getting ready to go through the roof. But he was telling me in his young life, every good thing that he he did come up hard. He came up, you know, in the streets. But every good thing that happened to him happened because he was trying to be a good guy and trying to help. And I don't think that gets stressed or um, pointed out enough in this world. And I think it's a secret. I don't want it to be a secret. So the Department of Peace is going to tell that too. You know, there is a formula to happiness. You know, it's not the only formula, but it's one that works. Yeah. Good karma or something. Like what 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 you put out, um, you'll get back. But... I don't think I've ever had anyone explain it in that way, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm, the only thing I'm doing is giving specific examples yeah. in lives, and my, my life is a long life, and it's just really crazy to see it in young lives, to see, see the same pattern repeated. And you're like, wow, there is, there is as crazy as this world and this life seems, there seems to be a pattern here. So yeah. we just want to keep, we're going to ride the way to it hits the beach. Yeah, you know? definitely. Mm-hmm. So mentoring and leadership is kind of the same thing, in my opinion. What about you? Well, I don't. I don't even like calling it mentoring. Okay. You know, I. I mean, I don't. I don't even blame anybody who does. Yeah. But that's just not what I call. It. It's uh-huh. my. It's my family. Uh-huh. You know, I quite frankly, um, to get, um, I guess, spiritual. We're all family, but the branch of my family, you know, black people, African Americans, have been particularly set apart for for um, 
for consternation and for um, ridicule and for oppression. So, though I love my whole family, I'm more concerned about that one until we get out of this yeah. mess that we're in. But that's why I say it's got to be light. Because those people need to know that, no, if you want good, you have to work at it. Because trust me, evil is working as hard as it can work. So we got to stop taking good for granted. That's not only in the government, but that's in business. That's in everyday life. And the people who are good need to be woke. That's another word they like to say all the time. That might be playing itself out, but it's still valid, you know, if you're woke to, to, to light, if you're woke to what's really going on. And away from our own ego, like this whole... This whole focus on I'ma do me. Imagine if Martin Luther King was walking around saying I'ma do me. <laughs> this, you know what I'm saying? That this whole world would be different. Would yeah. be you know and more oppressive. So you know we have to do one. We have to do one another. You know what what is me is what's best for you and this community is what's best for me. You know what I'm saying? And uh, that's not to, to be completely out of bounds and say you don't care for yourself at all. You do, but the priority has to be the village. That's all. So you kind of bring up an interesting point. Do you have, would you say that you have personal goals or would you say you're more focused on leaving an impact that you don't even, you don't even abide by that concept of personal goals because you're so focused on service? That's such a beautiful question. You're a wonderful thinker and a wonderful spirit. I have personal goals, yes, but those personal goals are to affect Okay. The village, okay. <laughs> you know, I you know the the idea of I want somebody to, to act aggrandize me is just so stupid and so sad and so funny and so ridiculous and so police, you know. No, I don't need nobody to um to um uh, give me any accolades or anything of that nature. Um, I have a group of people that love me, small group. That's I'm good, you mm-hmm. know, and and I do believe in God. I know God loves me, so I'm good. I want to do for people even people who don't even know that you're doing for them, you know. This whole um, um, white supremacist thing, I mean, I think a lot of that, quite frankly, is people who don't know, who are walking around in darkness, they just don't know. So on, while we're recording, you want to just kind of um, explain the concept of light um, in your life, and I know I kind of prompted you um, (laughs) to find that, um, but... So I had asked Keith before this episode um, if you could have a name for a podcast, like your personal podcast, what would that be? Mm-hmm. Well, a good friend once said to me, the Bible is definitely not the inerrant word of God because as soon as a man got a hold of it, if it was inerrant, it would have been errant as soon as, as soon as man dealt with it. But the word of God, which is just truth, is in there. So the first um, thing the, the, they say this, that this creator said was let there be light. So in trying to figure out, going back to what is this life and what the heck are we doing here, well, this creator said, let there be life first. It seems to me a good place for me to start. Let me get some knowledge yeah. first. You know, knowledge of how to talk, how to communicate, how to relate to other people, how to relate to myself, you know, and then let me get some things that are worth relating and worth communicating, and then let the fun begin. So, um, um, and I find that the more knowledge we have, um, Provided it's knowledge and useful things, and it can be knowledge as things as um, banal as how to uh, detail a car to you know how to play basketball, you know, um, to rocket science. Um, knowledge builds the spirit if it doesn't if you don't let it convert into ego. If you get knowledge with humility, 
you'll be a better, deeper, more fun, you know, more interesting person and your life will impact many more lives. So I'm trying to get all the knowledge I can mm -hmm. so that I can impact um, the most, the largest number of good people I can. And um, just so that when this world continues, I will have contributed something valuable to it. Yeah. yeah. So Keith, how old are you? 66. 66 years young, nice. What do you think keeps making you come back for more and keeps seeking out education formally and informally? Um, I don't know. I think I was born curious and um, and I think my love of people always makes me want to 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 stop their hurting. So I gotta find out what, what's causing them to hurt. You know, that's how I discovered that most people, in particular Americans, quite frankly, America been all over the world, Americans are particularly generous, decent people. We really are. We don't get credit for that. Because we have we have a, a sizable group of yahoos that make it look like we're not that way, when really we are. So I say, okay, well, what do I gotta do to um, let our goodness show and let everybody be as happy as I was as a child? You know, and happy, quite frankly, that I am as an adult. What do I got to do? What do I got to learn? What has to be uncovered? You know, what do we have to know? Because um, it's here for all of us. I mean, happiness and joy and um, a really, really good, robust life, it's here for everybody. But everybody doesn't know that. So mm -hmm. I just want to let everybody know if I can. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of want to transition into oh. music oh, and, yeah. it's my you know. Subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. What about music kind of like pulled you to it, or why do you think well, you were drawn to things, it? A couple of things. One, my family, the Ingram family, is like my extended family. They're, they're cousins, but they're really like brothers, like this the seventh wheel, you know. <laughs> and I just wanted to hang, quite frankly. So um, as I'm trying to figure out how, and they 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 were they were always accepting. I was like, I'm still like a brother to this day. Um, as as I'm wrestling with that, 1964 happens and the Beatles in February come and do Ed Sullivan's show. And um, I thought Ringo was cool, make a long story short. I thought the Beatles were exciting, Ringo was cool, and I wanted to do that. So I told my mother that um, I wanted the drum set at Christmas and she got it for me and I just sat down. I still remember the beat I played when I sat down. I actually played a beat as soon as I sat down with the drum, mm -hmm. and I still remember. In 2003, 40 years later, however many years it was, um, I was playing Royal Festival Hall, and I look up in the stands, and Paul McCartney is jumping around to me playing, <laughs> and he comes down to our dressing room and asks us for an autograph 40 years later. So I knew wow. at that point that I had come full circle. Uh -huh. I could do other things, you know. Um, <laughs> Um, and I actually have the, the tape of that, so people think of I, I actually showed it at Winthrop House the other night. I showed the tape with Paul McCartney came down to our backstage and was asking us for autographs. So I, I, I realized how beautiful my life was, but I literally come full circle in 40 years, and I could do other things. So I started um, going back into academia, and that worked out well. And here I am at the Citadel of Education, Harvard, you know, and uh, made a lot of good friends up here, including Dr. Cornell West, who yeah. I'm sorry to have left, but I'm uh, following down to Columbia to holler at him, but just a lot of wonderful people here, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, what do you think inspired your creativity or your drive to pursue music? 
really, like I said before, it was, with me, it was peer pressure trying to keep up with my family. Peer pressure. <laughs> yeah. Peer pressure and, goes a long way. <laughs> it does. It, it, it molds lives for, for the good and for the bad. And then, of course, Victor Gustafson was such a remarkable musician. He was like one of the best of all time trying to keep up with him and my good friend Jimmy Williams. And quite frankly, I couldn't keep up with him. They just liked me to let me hang, you know, until eventually I got it, you know. Yeah. The funny part is when I got it, the recording industry had ended as an industry in the 80s, but that's another story. I've blessed to have a wonderful career. But a lot of it had to do with me just breaking my neck to keep up with other people. You know? mm-hmm. What about, do you ever have times, did you ever have times in your music career when you had... Um, the so-called creative block, or you well, felt I, like you I, were in a lull. You, you're, really, you're really excavating my life because um, um, that's part of it. My um, Victor used to always try to get me to write songs with him, and because he was an established and well-respected worldwide songwriter, I tried, but I was always the worst. I sucked. I was listen. I write. I said, "Listen, you're not giving this to anybody." Lo and behold, struggling to write songs that I never could do. Now I write prose, and I write articles, and I write books yeah. for a living now, and I, I'm, I can really do it good, but I think it came from me struggling to write songs, which I couldn't do, but now just as a regular writer, people call me to write them articles, they have deadlines of two hours, and I write an article and it'll blow the, blow the socks off everybody, but I could write now, but it really came so my, the whole first half of my life was nothing but writer's block, trying uh-huh. to write a song. But now I never get it. If I have a subject that I, I, I'm passionate about, knowledgeable about, I could write I could write with anybody on that. Mm-hmm. So Wow, I love that. That's yeah. a great answer. Because quite frankly, and I tell people it's a secret, I don't I never write. I just talk. Uh-huh. And and it's in, and good writing is not your first draft. Good writing is that thirtieth draft. After uh-huh. you just edit, edit, edit. So the first thing I do I just I just talk, I just write. And then I edit with a with a big axe. I'm mean, I just cut out everything that's not compelling, uh-huh. and it worked. And I think that's a formula that would work for everybody. I think people have problems writing because they sit down and try to write. Don't do that. Sit down and talk and t- type as you're talking, uh-huh. and then come back and edit. You'll be fine. Okay, so in your writing process, I'm just curious. Are you just saying it in your head, or are you kind of like out loud talking to your computer? Saying it in my head, just okay. writing it out. And I, I don't, the, first, the main thing is I don't edit anything. It could be curse words, it could be ridiculous, it could be completely unfounded, you know, it could be grammatically horrendous, uh-huh. you know, it, you know, I don't care. At the first draft, I just get out everything that's in my system and everything I think should be in my system. And then I'll come back you know, after taking a five, ten minute break, and then I'll start editing and making sure that everything that I say is leads inexorably to the point that I'm trying to make. I think I do that better than anything. Definitely tend to have anxiety around papers, and I think a lot of the listeners do that as well. You, here's why you should get rid of it, because you're only talking to yourself. Uh-huh. Nobody hears you. <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm so <laughs> it's just talk on, on, your, on your computer, and then come back to it a couple days and take out everything that, that doesn't lead or point or support your point uh-huh. you'll find it to be easy you'll find that the things you say are probably brilliant and insightful and good you'll be happy with them nice well i'm gonna try that yeah and let cool. me know how it works out um so let's go back to music um how do you, would you consider music to be your calling um or did you consider it 
No, like I keep saying, it was just me trying to hack <laughs> you know, initially. But now, I don't see how I, I, I could have made it to this life without it because it's more than uh, a spiritual um, lift. It's um, it's a psych, psychological um, boon. You know, it's it's just it's it's just a wonderful way to um, communicate and escape. So it's a sword and a shield. You know, I yeah. can communicate with people and I can escape from people at the same time and. It's expressive and it is wonderfully empowering to be able to do something you do and see people's spirits go from regular to completely lifted. You know, um, that's yeah. just wonderful, you know, and to do that is, is a blessing. Uh huh. And what type of music did you play? I, sp- I specialize in classic R&B. Okay. Classic rhythm moves, classic soul is what they call mm-hmm. it. You know, like the Temptations, the, you know, Smokey Robinson, Teddy Pendergrass, the OJs, you know, um, all the classic R&B songs, which I think, quite frankly, I think is the highest art of all art forms, you know, um, because it takes a lot to take a, a simple subject and make it touch that heart. You know, so I look at it as maybe you're coloring, and you only have the primary colors. You only have red, blue, you know, and um, yellow with the yellow, yeah. yeah. And um, and you have to, you have to move people, and 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 I take nothing away from jazz, which is the most intellectually uh, demanding um, music art form that I know of. And it touches people, but it doesn't touch the number of people that R&B done right can. So I'm trying to learn how to play jazz. I'm not saying anything against jazz. Jazz is is that art form. I mean, because you could draw a line from jazz to blues to 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 Negro spirituals, as to be E.B. Du Bois, another Harvard graduate, called the Sorrow Songs. So the Sorrow Songs went from the the the, the melancholy blues that we felt on slave plantations. To once we got so-called free, to somebody took stole my lady, somebody stole my money. <laughs> Life is so hard. That's the blues. And then when we got to the cities and we were rebelling against that um, head down thing, we got to the real black pride of it. You know, that's where jazz came up, and um, that's sophisticated and urbane and a little bit arrogant stuck up. You know, and then of course the blues had another child called rock and roll which was wild and unpredictable and out of control. But that third child, classic R&B, classic soul, wasn't too stuck up, wasn't too wild, and it goes right down the center, and that's where I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Oh, my gosh. Looking back on it, do you think that music and being in that creative space, touching souls, like you said, did that have anything to do with your... um, your career that came after that, the more service-based career, because I think I think they're related. I, I yeah. think I, I think well. So in Camden, there's only a few people that will interface with my demographic is, which is 15 to about 27 year old males who are tripping, <laughs> just just not they're they're off the rails, you know. Mm-hmm. Very few people will deal with that demographic. That demographic. Um, Intimidates, and I understand if you, you're not from that, you don't need to fool that because you know. Um, but I think what allowed me to um, relate to that demographic, other than the fact that I act, I was a young black man myself, you know, I mm-hmm. think the second part is that I was a musician, 
and that gives me an understanding of um, of um, what's the vibe, the spirit, the feeling of people, and I can I can interpret, you know, when when to say what and when to not to say what, you know, and of course. Me being a musician, I would intrigue even young brothers who, you know, don't know the music that I, I made. They would still be intrigued by the fact that I was a musician, and, I, and so I got an in into to places that I probably never would have gotten. I think I had a sensitivity that other people who were not artists would not have. Um, I'm, that that's my guess. Mm-hmm. So by that sensitivity, that's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting like choice of words. There, mm-hmm. what do you mean by you well, have a sensitivity towards okay. life or? My career depended on me being able to feel an audience okay. what they're feeling and then hit them right at that time with the right song or the right artist and the right, you know, in, in real time, you know. That's how what live engagements do. Like most of the live engagements I, I would do very rarely had a set list. We would go there and we would just play basically how the people responded. So you get used to being attuned to people. You get your, and, and, um, their expressions, you know, um, the the energy they emanate, you know, and um, mm-hmm. and you could because you're able to respond to it, you're able to communicate. So people who are who have been hurt in this life and have have a right to not trust anybody, you know, you you know when to say what and how to say it and where to say it and you know how to communicate it to where you're able to get through where a lot of people who are not that sensitive to another human being would probably step on toes, you know, um, aggravate somebody, you know. I think that being a musician, I'm able to uh, navigate a little better. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned previously um, that you have that innate kind of sense of how to reach young black men specifically mm-hmm. um, and how to kind of get them onto a different path or mm-hmm. a path that you know is better for right. them mm-hmm. or that they know mm-hmm. is the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that kind of sticks out to you during that? Like, how do you kind of go about oh, doing that? A great question. You're asking such wonderful questions. <laughs> but no, it's definitely a formula. And I, I've, I've said this, and I'm 66, and I've said it to people who are older and younger. I said, have you ever seen an african-american man or woman who honored their history who was not excellent and i'm i've i've asked that to a thousand people and i have never seen one that that didn't and neither of anybody else so the magic formula that i have found in my community and that's that comes out the bible too is the fifth of the ten commandments honor thy father and mother that your days go well and i'm thinking it's just a couple of words but i ended up realizing that Everybody who does that, they get perspective, they get purpose, they get power, they get passion, you know. And I don't care, they could be from the most poor, most humble circumstance, even chaotic circumstances. Something about when they start honoring their history, there's a focus that comes. So you can't go into a kid you just meet for the first time, but here's a history book. <laughs> you don't do it like that, right? You know. But you understand that once you can maneuver them to that place through time, you know, that, that they will see this world different. And when they see the world different, they'll see themselves different. And they will perform different, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So, what are some of your... Have you had any um, cases or young people who you tried to help who you unfortunately couldn't reach? Of course. And how does that impact you? I have... Um, 
I have a, what's it called, circuit breaker. So I tell the, the youth I work with, I say, listen, I'm, I'm working with you for two reasons. One, because I've been privileged and honored to be able to work with you. It's an honor for me to do this. And I love, I, there's nothing, Paul McCartney came to ask for my autograph, but that's nothing like when I see one of these young brothers walk across that stage and get that, that um, diploma. Mm-hmm. That's the highest high I've ever had, you know. And everybody can get that. Everybody can't have Paul McCartney, but walk, <laughs> but everybody can get that, help some kid. I said, so I'm, I'm doing this because you need it. I said, but I'm also doing it that if I see you and you fail, I don't have to feel guilty and I don't have to feel bad. I know you had an opportunity because I gave it to you. You know, mm-hmm. so it is, and and then when I do see something fail, I say I have a cutoff valve. I don't really think about it, but I I I wish that it wasn't that way. But trust me, I have enough successes that they do obliterate the uh, the failures that I've had to experience. Yeah. You know. Do you see any innate qualities in the successes? Like, is there oh something God, yes. you can tell from them right away? Like, and what is that? Like, you mean, can you name it? In other words, is there, is, are you saying, well, I see a kid, can I tell this one's going to be successful yeah. and this one's not? No. You can't see any markers of success? You can see some, but, you know, like anything else, it, okay, not instantly. It doesn't take long. They say it don't take a whole day to recognize sunshine. <laughs> so it doesn't take long, but it takes a, it takes a few few weeks yeah and you'll you'll be able to tell I mean little things like if you tell them to be somewhere at nine if they get there late if they're apologetic about being late then you know you got somebody that you're working with uh. if they get there late and act like you know that's it's supposed to be that way more than once then that's like a marker that this might not um they, that person might not be ready it's not a bad person that person just might not be ready to transit out of their chaos into a um, a life of purpose. What do you see as the biggest issue that young people are facing today? Same issue that old people are facing today, a, a, <laughs> a, a, a lack of knowledge. Okay. They don't, I mean, we could, the, the political morass and that's going on in Washington, D.C., that's mainly because the people don't know anything. We don't engage in it, even to the point that we don't know that politics runs our lives. In other words, in, other words, in America, there is no excuse for everybody not to be upper middle class. There's no excuse. There is no excuse. The money is here. The, the will from enough people is here. The only thing that's not here is the people knowing that and knowing, and therefore knowing how to act to make that happen. But that could happen in three years by the calendar if people knew um, that everybody in America could be upper middle class and above, and that um, if the people demanded, they would have to make it happen. Um, so everything comes off of that. Crime is because people don't have any money. You go to Camden County Jail, it's a 500 place, uh, capacity place with 1,500 people in it. Go in there and ask how many people made simply $35,000 a year at a, at a respectable job. Mm-hmm. I guarantee out of the 1500 you won't find 100 So, So there's no such thing as a crime problem. It's a survival problem because people don't have good jobs, yet they got $70,000 to keep them there for one year, but they don't have 35000 to give them a good, good job. Mm-hmm. That would stop in an instant if people knew that and came together maybe in the U.S. Department of Peace and made that happen. 
Yeah. And every problem, healthcare, oh, we don't have problems. We just have a lack of knowledge in the body politic. And once that lack of knowledge is taken care of, um, um, it'll be a wonderful place and we could actually export that beauty and that happiness to other nations around the world. Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. um, how can a young person go about building their dream community or building up the network around them? Be a member of the U.S. Department of Peace when it comes out in February. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, promoting the U.S. Department of Peace, as you should. Thank you so much. And we are going into our final segment, the quick vision questions. Mm -hmm. um, so the rules are you have to answer this question in one sentence or one word. <laughs> no more, if okay. possible. Okay. Uh, so question number one, what is your most prized accomplishment thus far? My youth. Nice. What is your favorite artist of today? <clears throat> Chaka Khan and Marvin Gaye. If you had to pick one rule to live by and everyone had to follow it, what would that rule be? Do unto others. Why reinvent the wheel? Do unto others, you would have them do unto you. That's the golden still rule. It still works. <laughs> the golden rule. Yeah. Perfect. What is one success habit that you practice on the daily basis? Reading. What is the number one piece of advice you have for an up-and-coming visionary? Give me one minute. That's a, that's a strong <laughs> question. I should do that. Um, learn, love, and live. Gotcha. All right, Keith, thank you so much. It has been an honor having you on the mm -hmm. podcast today. I'm so grateful for you sharing your time with me. And so that completes this week's episode. I'm sending extra love to all the visionaries listening, and I hope you valued this episode. If you did, be sure to hit the follow and share this episode with a friend. I'll leave you how I always leave you. If you can see it, you can be it. It all starts with you. Awesome. <laughs>